You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It hasn't snowed in years, but every now and then in late January we'll get a fractal of frost crawling up the windows. On those days I like to go out to the waterfront and watch my breath hang in the air. I feel unburdened. I am no longer afraid. I stand at the edge of the boardwalk and watch the water. I think of all the things it has taken and all that was taken from me. Sometimes I stare out at the sea for hours, well past dark, until I am elsewhere in time and elsewhere in place, back in the battered red country where I was born. And that's when I see her again, rising out of the water. She is exactly as I remember her, a hulking bronzed body, her back lined with ashen scars, each one a testimony to the torture she was made to endure, the secret crimes committed against her. She rises a flesh monolith reborn from the severed belly of the savannah. And I am a child again, yet to be taken from my parents and my home, yet to be betrayed. I am back home by the riverbank, and I am happy, and I still love her. My secret is I still love her. This isn't a story about war. It's about ruin. Omar El Akkad is an award-winning journalist and author whose reporting includes dispatches from the NATO-led war in Egypt and the Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson, Missouri. He's a recipient of the National Newspaper Award for investigative reporting for his coverage on the Toronto 18 terrorism arrests. He has also received the Goff Penny Memorial Prize for Young Journalist, as well as three National Magazine Award honorable mentions. His new novel is American War. Thank you for joining me, Omar. Thank you for having me. You write at the beginning, this isn't a story about war. It's a story about ruin. This takes us to the beginning of the story in your book. Set us up and tell us where you take us 60 years hence. So American War is the story of the Second American Civil War, which takes place around 2074. The America in which it takes place has been, like much of the world, has been ravaged by climate change. The coastlines are gone. The great coastal cities are drowned. Florida is gone entirely. There's been a massive inland exodus. A hundred million people have moved inland. The capital is no longer Washington, D.C. It's Columbus, Ohio. And and long after it would do any good at all, the union decides to uh, impose a prohibition on fossil fuels. The federal government decides that it's going to combat all of this by banning fossil fuels. Of course, by this time, most of the world has moved on to other sources of fuel, it's not really an issue, practically speaking, except that this, a number of southern states decide they would rather secede from the Union than go along with this. And that's what starts a second civil war. The war itself, the sort of kinetic, violent part of it, lasts a very short time. The South is defeated militarily. And then what follows is a sort of guerrilla insurrection cold war that lasts for, for another, the better part of a decade. This is such an interesting story because it captures all of our fears now. But I'm wondering, um, have you been asked a lot if you consider this a prediction of the future? I have. And and in the hopes of selling more books, I'm inclined to say yes. Um, <laughs> but it's not true. I, I, I When I wrote this, I started writing this in, in the summer of 2014, and I finished it in the summer of 2015. And not only was I was I completely oblivious to what was coming next? I mean, I finished this a couple of weeks before Donald Trump announced he was running for president. Not only was I oblivious to what was coming next, I I didn't think of it, and I still don't think of it as an American book. To me, it's not a book about this country. To me, it's a book about a character named Surratt Chestnut, and it's a book about the sort of universal nature of revenge. That's what I set out to write. I, I think, for me, one of the things that when I see a book that's set like this in the future, what what struck me was that you could take all of the elements of the story in this book and just rejigger them slightly, reset them slightly, and you could tell the story of a Syrian refugee who becomes a terrorist in the in the current day without changing 
a lot. And I think that science fiction is often seen to predict the future, but what it's really predicting instead is the present. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing I, I say a lot about this book is that almost all the major events that take place in this novel have happened. They just happen to somebody far away, somebody <laughs> who doesn't have very much of a voice. Um, and so the reason that I that I said it in this country and the reason that I think for a very long time it's going to be thought of as an American book, despite my best efforts, is that I wanted to get at the idea that what allows us to think of people far away as as exotic or fundamentally different in how they react to these things is the privilege of living in a very peaceful part of the world. And that's why it's set here. <laughs> well, I, I think, too, that for me, uh, what captures us are the fantastic characters and an immediate m immersion in story. There's a tension. When we're put into this world, there's a kind of confusion. We, if you, Unless you like read all the blurbs, you really don't know exactly what's happening, all the details. And I think one of the challenges of this kind of book is to manage the reader's confusion about the world level so that you want to keep them go. Oh, I want to find out what that means. What do they mean by that? Could you talk about that process in creating just the plot and the story of this book? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't only about um, about controlling the, the, the reader's confusion, but my own confusion. I mean, <laughs> the reason I resist the label of science fiction on this book is not because I'm opposed to the genre of science fiction. It's because I don't believe I have nearly the talent or imagination to pull off proper science fiction. It involves an immense amount of world building. Um, and so when I was writing this book, I, I wrote it in a house in, in southeast Portland, and, and the office where I was writing, was the walls were filled with maps of, you know, this is what the refugee camp looks like. This is what the coastline looks like now that, that's, you know, the coasts are underwater. And I was trying desperately to keep to keep track of all of these moving parts. And, and that's part of the reason the, the book is structured the way it is. In between the chapters, I've inserted these fake historical documents. They split up the narrative, um, you know, fake letters from governors or, or um, oral histories and so on and so forth. The reason I started writing all of that was to keep track of the world in my <laughs> mind. It wasn't until much later that I decided to actually insert these things into the book. So you these came from a, a sort of Bible you're creating as a backstory for the novel, the events in the novel itself? Yeah, I was leaning hard on, on the 10 years I have uh, of experience as a journalist, which is to say that I deal constantly with formal documents, you know, these bland freedom of information requests or um, AP-style reports of news <laughs> events, you know, that sort of thing. That was a world in, in which I was I was very well versed. Uh, and so that's, that's why I, I leaned pretty hard on that. Well, I think that one of the things that you did well in this book is to create this kind of the gritty feel of this world. When we're there, we feel the dirt. We feel the how different it is, I think, from our everyday lives. And in your, you were talking earlier about wanting to make the lives of those distant more real. And that's what this does by turning America essentially into an amalgam of the Middle East or Africa or any other war-torn part of this world that's not America, you give us, you put us in their skins, in their eyes. Yeah, I, I, I and I don't know if I, if I succeeded at all in doing this, and I, and I think in many places I probably failed in doing this. But, but one of the things I was trying to get at was this country or this part of the world as a secondary setting for a story, which is not something that is very familiar. Uh, usually it's the other way around. Usually there's an exotic place somewhere else on the other side of the planet, and that is where a very American or very Western story is taking place. And here what I have is America being the exotic place in which what I hope is is something more of a universal story is taking place. Well, um, I, I think that for the universal part of the story, Again, we, we come to, to the characters. And so talk about creating um, American refugees, American refugee camps, which we're already, uh, scientists are already considering what's going to happen to us. And maybe in the next 20 years, we might already, we might be seeing American refugees in our lifetime. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a... Um of, a, of something that took place a couple of years ago. I was on assignment in southern Florida, and I was doing a story about climate change and how it affects the very southern end of, of the state. Um, and you go talk to 
small-town mayors who are telling their their residents that it is quite possible that their grandchildren will not be able to live in this place, that it will not be a livable area by that time. And I was talking to a climate change scientist who has been raising the alarm on this sort of thing um, for for better part of 30 years. And he talks about how he goes into communities and whenever he goes to speak to community groups, he'll bring a relief map of the community he's in and he'll show them this is what it looks like with one meter of sea level rise. This is what it looks like with two. And, and slowly the community is becoming inundated. You know, they can see it visually. And he says that after one of these meetings, inevitably somebody will come up to him and point to the map and say, oh, look, it's going to be okay because my house is going to be fine. And he says, well, yeah, because you're on a small hill, you know, the, the, the roads are gone, the infrastructure is gone. And so there's this sense of, you know, things might be bad, but I'll be okay. And that played a big part in the story. And I don't think that's an American phenomenon. I think that we all have a little bit of that in us. I, I confess to feeling the same thing. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. I, I live in a bluff that's about 70 feet above the ocean. You know, there's nice. But then I think, well, gosh, the street behind us would be a river. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, a very common phenomenon. Uh, at one point, uh, Surat says to um, a character whom we don't meet until late, later into the book, she says to him, that's all there is to life, wanting to know. And I think that's a, a, a powerful statement, a powerful kind of plot driver, because she wants to know. Yeah, to me, it's it's her story above, above all else. Um she's she's the main character in the book and her defining characteristic to me is that kind of curiosity the very defiant curiosity and and the central tragedy of the book is um how that curiosity is sort of used against her until it becomes a weapon of sorts we meet uh Sarat um she's when we first meet her her, her name is Sarah but she, her name is Sarah T Chestnut and they call her Sarat Talk about creating the chestnuts. This It's a very interesting uh, situation you've created with a kind of a family that's on the verge of being refugees. Yeah, the um, the, so the name Sarah T. Chestnut, I really like the name Surratt, and, and her name, Surratt Chestnut, is, is based in part on, on two Marys from the Civil War, Mary Chestnut and Mary Surratt. Um, one was a diarist, and the other one was, I believe, the only woman convicted in the plot to assassinate Lincoln. The chestnuts, to me, are are an unrooted family. They're a family that's unanchored. They live at the start of the novel. They live by the banks of the Mississippi Sea, which is what the Mississippi River has become in southernmost Louisiana at this point. And they have very few neighbors. They don't have a community. They they, they don't have an anchor. And that was something that that I I sort of drew on from my own experience of feeling somewhat unanchored, of not knowing where I belong. Um, I don't know if I if I succeeded in translating that properly, but but the, the Chestnuts to me were a family that, from the get-go, were seeking some sort of refuge or another. Uh, you um, have a father, a mother. So talk about this, the dynamic, and there's an idea of twins that, that carries through this book, too. Are you, uh, do you have twins? No, I, um, so I struggle, and I think this is the fundamental struggle I have as an author, um, and and as an author of fairly limited talent in the creation of these things, I, I, I struggle between writing from experience and veering away um, to get at another point, which is to say, I don't, I don't, I'm an only child, um, but I'm writing about twins. I'm writing about <laughs> twins who are the children of black and Mexican parents in southernmost Louisiana. I'm writing very far outside any area that I have any right to, uh, and I struggle with these things and how to do them properly and whether I had any right to do them in the first place. But I think too, you had you in your life as a reporter had seen so much of this. Um, so many of these kind of situations cast in a different light from a different situation in the foreign exotic places that as an American, recreating them, I think, would come kind of naturally to you. It's like you took in all this, all, all these sites that you saw and then they turned into little nodules in your brain and they rained down into words on the page. Let's step back and tell us about some of your personal reporting experiences that informed this book? 
So it started very early on. I was fortunate enough to get an internship and then a full-time job at, at the Globe and Mail, which is the national newspaper in Canada. And when I was hired on full-time, I think I was hired on a, on a Monday or something in 2006. And about three or four days later, Canada experienced the largest set of terrorism arrests in its history. It was called the Toronto 18. It was these 18 kids, and some of them were kids, some of them were teenagers, um, who had these grandiose plans to storm Parliament Hill and behead the Prime Minister and do all of this stuff, and they never got anywhere with it. Um, but it was the biggest story in Canada, and for a while it was a, it was a big story in the world. We had the New York Times up there and CNN and so on. And um, the editor-in-chief looked around our newsroom and said, okay, who here has any experience with Islam or the Middle East or any of the issues that are related to what's happening? And two people put their hands up. Me, and I was a reporter with three days' experience, <laughs> and the theater critic. Those are the only two people with any experience in, in any of those worlds, even tangential. And so for the next year and a half of my life, I was covering the stories related to how somebody becomes radicalized. And that obviously plays a huge role in, in how this book came about. Well, I think that um, as a, a plotting device, it, we when we meet Sarah, just immersing us in her character, I think you do such a good job of taking us step by step through somebody who is being changed by forces they don't understand in ways they don't understand. And I think that that's uh, part of the dynamic that, that drives this book is that we are uh, individuals. We have some control over who we are, but we don't have much control at all over where we are or what happens to us. Yeah, I was um, I was reading a book recently, and it's always a terrible idea to say I was reading a book when you can't remember the name of the author. So I apologize in advance to this gentleman who'd written a great book on the idea of um, borders just the walls we construct, dating back to essentially the advent of the modern nation-state in the 1600s and so on and so forth, this idea of walling off what was previously um, common space. And he suggested this idea, which is a fascinating idea to me, that much in the same way that in many of the developed parts of the world today, it is considered offensive and wrong to discriminate based on a whole host of characteristics over which the person being discriminated against had very little say. I think one day we may look back on the idea of nationality and where you're born as one of those characteristics, which is something that you do not have any say over. And yet we happily discriminated every border in the world based on this thing. Um, that, that to me played, played a part in the thinking around that idea of winning the geographic lottery. You know, you're born in a part of the world that's peaceful. Congratulations. Your life will be very easy from here on in. <laughs> um, that's not the, the case uh, for Surat Chestnut and her family. Uh, you take us, this book takes us into uh, one of the big forces that's shaping our world today that we don't talk about much, which it, we talk about emigration, immigration, but what we don't really talk about and what will become obviously a bigger part of our world is human migration and what happens when the world changes in ways that force humans to move whether they want to or not. And that puts people who don't might not like one another in unfortunately close proximity. Yeah, I mean, when we first meet the, the chestnuts in this book, um, they are completely unconcerned with who wins this war. They don't <laughs> care. They don't care if the South wins or they, they have no ideological uh, allegiance whatsoever. Um, all they're trying to do is get a northern work permit because they've heard that life is easier in the north and they've heard that you can make more money there and live a more peaceful life. And that's all they care about. And in that sense, they aren't much removed from most of what we would call the economic migrants uh, in the world. Um, and, the, and there's you know, we are under this impression as a people everywhere in the world that the places we live in today are always going to be there and have always been there, which is not true. Um, mm. It wasn't that long ago, geologically speaking, that Florida was about 100 miles wider than it currently is. That land is gone now. <laughs> um, you know, and there's going to be a day if we don't do something, and even if we do something, it might be too late, where a lot of Bangladeshis are going to have to move. Some of the poorest people on earth are going to have to migrate away um, from, from land that is disappearing. 
we are thoroughly unprepared for these things. And I, I, I don't have an answer uh, at all, but, but it's one of the things I think about a lot. I think actually you do have an answer, and that answer is this novel, <laughs> because this novel will uh, find everybody who reads it thinking about all of these things a lot. And one of the ways that uh, things that the uh, speculative fiction, fiction set in the future, offers you a lot of opportunities as a writer is to play with things. And so instead of the Red Cross, we get the Red Crescent. And so talk about uh, there are scenes in this book that are set in a refugee camp. The, the chestnuts end up in a refugee camp. Uh, so talk about the creating that refugee camp and the refugee camps that you uh, presumably saw that informed the creation of this version. So it's based on a number of things. The refugee camp in in the book Camp Patience is based on a number of camps that I either studied um, or reported on. Um, it's also based on experiences I had reporting uh, all, all over the place, really. Um, so visually speaking, for example, it's based on um, the layout of tents in uh, the NATO airfield in Kandahar uh, and the tents in a place called Camp Justice, which is where they keep the media whenever we fly down to Guantanamo Bay or at least was last time I went. Um, there, I think there's a line somewhere in the book that says all tents look alike in wartime or something like that. Um, there are scenes that take place in the camp that are based on things I saw. For example, there's a scene in the book where um, a volunteer vaccination officer is is wandering around the camp administrating administering the um, polio vaccine to, to children in the camp. And because most of the children running around in the camp don't have ID cards that say how old they are, and the polio vaccine, I believe, is kind of useless after the age of five or something like that. She's getting them to wrap their arms over their heads, and if their hands reach past their their ears, she guesses that they're probably older than five <laughs> years old. Um, that's taken from time I spent wandering around with a, a volunteer vaccination team in the suburbs of Kandahar, and that's what they would do because kids would be wandering and would come up to them because they had candy um, and didn't, you know, they didn't have ID cards, and you just have to sort of guess. Uh, and so a lot of these things that I saw sort of found their way into into the creation of this camp. I think that what's as as we read this and experience it, it's a really interesting um, kind of a, a split brain experience because on one hand we're immersed in the immediate story, uh, and that takes place in this America that seems pretty much all too real to us. We seem to be headed towards it on, on a bullet train. Uh, on the other hand. Um, we realize that the scenes themselves are reminiscent of things we see on the news right now. <laughs> so uh, talk about creating that. That creates a tension, a reading tension in and of itself. Yeah, and it's not anything that I anticipated at all. Um, I remember, uh, so we were lucky enough um, early on to sell the uh, German language rights to this book. And at one point, the German publisher sent me an email asking for uh, my thoughts, they were asking their, their U.S.-based authors for their thoughts on election night. And so they asked us on election night to sit down and, and write a short blog post. And I remember writing, I wrote about two pages uh, at about 8 p.m. the night of the election. And then at about 3 a.m., I deleted all two pages and started from scratch. That's how little I knew about what was coming. Um, and so reading this book now in, in this context or having it reach the world in this context now um, means that for as long as this country is in the place it's in, I'm stuck sort of representing and defending this book in that context, which I do not know how to do. Um, there are times when things come up in the news now that are reminiscent of, of things in this book, and it does not make me feel good about myself. <laughs> it doesn't make me feel like I've achieved anything um, in terms of crystal ball prediction. It just makes me kind of sad, to be honest. Well, it's not. I think the the problem is is that you're not trying to predict anything. What you're showing us is what we are. Evil does not recognize itself in the mirror. I I should say. I mean, not that I'm saying we're evil, but there are bad people in this book. And no, and I I have I have an immense appreciation for this country. Um, and I think it's the kind of appreciation that's much easier for, for a foreigner to have in the sense that I'm a foreign observer of this country and only recently um, a resident of this country. 
And it's the appreciation of what is fundamentally at the heart of this country, which is the sense that you can come here and be left alone. You know, you can think what you want and you can say what you want and you can do what you want. And even if that is just a dream or a mythology, the the idea that it might exist, that sliver of hope, to somebody who comes from the part of the world that I come from is an amazing thing. And so I'm not concerned with this idea of portraying a people as evil. I'm concerned much more with the idea that anybody can be made evil if they're subjected to enough injustice. That's at the heart of this book. I don't think there are two human beings on this planet from opposite ends of this planet who wouldn't have that in common, that they could be made evil if subjected to enough injustice. That's a scary and disturbing thought. (laughs) (laughs) That's very unhappy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a bummer of a book. I'm not I'm not gonna no, lie. It's... Well, that, now let's 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 uh, I'm gonna step back from that because that's a problem I often have with a a, a book with this setting is mm-hmm. it's dour. Mm-hmm. You sit down and you read it after about like you know twenty minutes. You're thinking, you know, the real world is depressing. <laughs> yeah, I do not need to be more depressed. But I think this book avoids that by involving this very intensely in the characters. By the time we get far enough along to really, really twig to what's going on, um, it you say, oh, my God. <laughs> I, when we first sold the book, um, I was very, very fortunate to, to have a publisher like Knopf, who, who made no substantial changes to the narrative arc, by the way. They accepted it for what it was. And I was speaking to Sunny Meadow, who's my editor and who's the person who bought this book, and he said something that I still consider to be, um, you know, I, I have trouble. I have trouble with compliments. I'm mm-hmm. not of the mindset that I, I don't accept them and I accept all criticism. And I, I have I have immense doubt about the quality of anything I write. The only compliment that has ever meant anything to me was was the day I first spoke to him. And he said, you know, I picked up this book and you think you're reading something and really you're reading something else. Um which which I breathed a big sigh of relief when I heard because I thought, okay, you know, whether it's a good book or not, at least he understood what I was trying to do. No, I I think that's a, a perfect uh, perfect example explanation of what it is. You mentioned Guantanamo, and there's definitely uh, portions of this book that are that are hearken to to that setting. So I I'd like you to talk about how close you got to Guantanamo, and then. Talk about re, you know, revising it. Essentially, you got to revise it. I went to Guantanamo eight times um, in in two thousand and eight. I spent a good chunk of two thousand and eight in Guantanamo covering the um, military pretrial hearings for. Um, I, I believe he was a man at that point, but a boy when he was captured. Um, Omar Cotter, who was the only Canadian at at Guantanamo Bay, and so I spent a lot of time covering those those hearings. Um, but also just sort of being in Guantanamo Bay, which up until the start of the War on Terror was really just sort of this sleepy marine base that dealt mostly with migrants. Uh, and then um, almost overnight became one of the most famous places on Earth. Um, one of the very strange things about Guantanamo Bay is this kind of Orwellian, we've always been at war with Eurasia sort of thing, where we would go down there and we would have one set of military minders and people working working with us, and they would have one set of rules. But those people changed over every now and then, and you'd come back and you'd get an entirely new set of rules, and they would pretend like it was always this way. And so it's a very bureaucratic place. It's not, I mean, it's it's physically pleasant. It's it's on it's on it has some really nice beaches, you know, that sort of thing. And you're 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 very cognizant of being a place where everything exists in very close proximity to its exact opposite, which is a very disturbing sense to have. I remember one day we were driving down to see Camp X Ray which is the camp where they first held the first detainees at the start of the War on Terror. Only lasted a few months, but it's sort of the pictures of people kneeling in what feels like dog kennels in those orange jumpsuits. Those come from Camp X-Ray, and they become the defining image of Guantanamo Bay. I have to admit that was just rising right in my brain. Yeah, and, 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 and the people who run the place hate that that's the defining image because they say, well, they were only there while we set up the actual camps, but that's neither here nor there. But I remember us going to this place, which now feels like almost the setting of one of those backwoods horror movies because it's these sheds that they're not allowed to destroy because they might be used as evidence one day, but they're overgrown with weeds and sort of, you know, completely dilapidated. But on our way to see this place, 
that has such a sort of sinister connotation, we stopped in the middle of the road and these three or four smiling little children skipped across the street to go to the playground nearby. They were the children of the officers who are based there. And so you're constantly in this place where you think everything here lives very close to its exact opposite. What a, what a strange place to be. Science fiction often revolves around technology. This book really doesn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but it, in one way it does, and that's in the durability of technology, which is to say that right here, I pick up your book, that's a 500-year-old piece, piece of technology, <laughs> and the difference between that and the Gutenberg Bible is only about several billion, <laughs> million dollars yep, yep. in value. <laughs> cultural value, they may prove to be the same in the long run. That said, uh, some technologies last for so long, and it was terrifying to me to consider that one of the technologies that's lasted as long as a book is waterboarding, and that that should prove to be the ultimate bet noir. Yeah, there's a chapter... Um in the second half of the book that takes place in a in a um, a camp called Sugarloaf. And Sugarloaf is pretty plainly obvious what I'm basing it on. I'm basing it on Guantanamo Bay. And, and it was the hardest chapter to write, and I think I was the angriest when I wrote it. Which is to say that I'm now three years removed from the writing of this book, and and I, I am astounded at, at how angry I was when I was writing. Um, but anyway, in this in this chapter, what takes place? How did you know you were angry when you were writing? Did you know Did you know you were angry when you were writing it? And how did you identify it afterwards? I think for me, anger comes hand in hand. Or my, you know, how I experience anger, and I'm sure it's very different for from other people. But how I experience it is that it comes hand in hand with doubt. What I mean by that is that when I was younger, I was much more confident that all the opinions I had were correct. Um, and they were stupid opinions about everything, about things that I had no business having opinions about. And I was also much happier. I was happy and I was confident. Um, and these days, I am uncertain about almost everything. Um, and it comes from a place of of doubt and also of anger. Um, I... <laughs> I don't like the idea of 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 simply accepting what is happening as what needs to happen. And so when I was writing about, you know, there there is a torture scene in this book. Um, and it is what I was thinking about when I was writing it was the idea that once you agree to do monstrous things to somebody, somebody in that equation has to be a monster then. Because if it's not them... It has to be you. And so I am certain that at the time, the people who did these things had to convince themselves that the people they were doing it to were monsters. Because if it wasn't them, it was the person doing it. Um, that's what I was thinking about when I was writing that chapter, and that's not a pleasant thing to, to spend much time thinking about. There are assassination attempts and successes and failures in this book of high-ranking government officials. Uh, you uh, talked about uh, studying uh, Mary Surratt. Was she the uh, uh, conspirator uh, convicted uh, trying to kill Lincoln? And uh, So talk about uh, researching, looking up uh, assassination attempts. Yeah, I hate to use the word fun, but but researching a lot of American history is so fascinating. Um, in part because, you know, this country almost since its birth does everything at such a high volume that you sort of you read these things and it's and it's just fascinating on its face. The other reason is that I grew up in a part of the world that was completely unconcerned with American history. It's not something I learned in school. Um, you know, I, I went to school in the Middle East and largely in a British school system, uh, and so. This was fresh to me, um, and I spent the better part of six months just reading and and inhaling as much as I could about, you know, I started with the Ken Burns documentary. I started with all, you know, 200 hours of that thing, um, and every part of it was fascinating. Every part of it was interesting, and some of it worked its way into the book on a very superficial level, you know, the naming of characters and that sort of thing. Um and some of it some of it worked its way into the backbone, but it, but it was it was an amazing education. I think it worked itself in 
to the book in an existential level and that I just tweaked to this. But this is a book that as an American, you read it, you see America as a foreign land. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think that to put modern-day Americans in an America that's not so far in the future, that seems completely foreign, almost unrecognizably so, that's a powerful feat, yet it seems completely logical at the same time. So there's a, a kind of a, a dissonance. This book thrives on dissonance. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking a lot about um, about that idea, that idea you bring up um, of 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 this place as being foreign, or as as observed as being foreign, I guess. Um, which to me is is the default state of war. Um, you know, I mean, Japan symbolically can't have a standing army. Um, Germany has incredibly, incredibly tight restrictions on imagery related to uh, to the Nazi regime. Um, and those, in large part, were conditions and related to what it means to lose a war. There are conditions imposed upon you. The losing side of the civil war in this country has no such constraints. That is not something that is even really thought about as as a sort of natural outcome of, of wars. Hey, you lost. Here are the conditions by which we now have, have a peace treaty. And and I wonder if that has to do with the idea and that very unique feeling of fighting somebody who looks and sounds the same way you do, and whether that influences how a war ends and how, in some ways, it doesn't end at all. I was reading a biography of Jim Jones, Mm-hmm. And as I read about his childhood and how he became who he was, I could not help but think that that book goes hand in hand <laughs> with this one and not in a happy manner. <laughs> the The world is filled with fanatics, and somehow they seem to always find a way of getting the biggest microphone, megaphone. Yeah. I. Uh, by the way, I've heard great things about that book. Is it is it as good as I've I've heard? Yes. Okay. I I, I have to pick that up at some yeah. point. Um, yeah. I mean, belief is such a comforting thing. It sidesteps all that is difficult in life, um, <laughs> and and gets you to a to a really comforting place that's really only becomes uncomfortable when reality intrudes. And so, if you're well versed at denying reality. That's a really happy place to be. You know, I'm, I'm of the opinion that some of the most dangerous people on earth are people who can't differentiate between the truth and what they'd like the truth to be. And a lot of the disasters that we're going to face down the road are, are, are born of that kind of thinking. To create a, the, this world, you do do a great job of world building. Thank you. And one of the things that I think is important about world building is to avoid the information dump and to leave things... To the to the reader's imagination. So, how much of this book was left on the cutting room floor, so to speak? Approximately twenty thousand words. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> at its, um, yeah, at its longest, it was about one hundred and forty thousand, and at its shortest, about one hundred and ten, something like that. Um, uh, the the thing that was cut the most were the um, were the the source documents, the fake historical documents between the chapters. When I first started. Some of these were pages and pages and pages long, and my editor had to say, "Look, we don't need we don't need a twenty page oral history of this war that never happened. We get it, you know, move on." Um, but that to me came from that idea of world building. I really wanted that that very specific world, and and um, you know, it's the Vonnegut thing. It's kill your babies. After a certain point, there there are lines in this book that I fell in love with, and at a certain point, I had to. I had to come to a conclusion that really what I was trying to do with those lines was be clever and that I had to get over myself. And so a lot of the deletions had to do with that. I have to ask, there's a, a document that has lots of bits redacted. Did you write the redacted parts? I did. And there <laughs> I thought is, you might have. <laughs> there is a funny and totally irrelevant story about this. So I, I wrote them and then I um, and then I blacked them out. But when we went to the printers for the advanced reader copies there was a typo somewhere. They forgot to black out one of the words. And it seemed like such an 
accurate representation of bureaucratic bumbling that I think we actually left it. We actually left the thing that was accidentally not redacted that was supposed to be in the book. Uh, that's I, it's, It felt like you, looking at the pacing of the prose, it looked like you had, had probably done that. But I have to say, too, that the, those portions of the book were really nicely paced and set. And to a certain extent, it was like um, field goals. You could always I was always looking forward to to the next <laughs> excerpt from these journals. Uh, so you do you think that you'll be working in this use the, what you've done so far to return to this uh, scenario? I hope not. Not because <laughs> I don't like it. I, I really do. Um and that 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 document, by the way, the censored letter from a from a sugarloaf detainee, is based in large part on a book I read called the Guantanamo Diaries by a man named Slahi, who was a, um, uh, a he was captive in Guantanamo, and he he wrote this diary, and um, it eventually was published. But between his writing it and publication, it went through the government censors, and so what you get is a book that is in large part black space. Um, they they've and so you get these little footnotes from his lawyers at the bottom saying we think he meant this. And so, for example, one of the things in the book, in the novel, um, that's that's taken from that is that they, um, it turned out the government censors would block out a lot of instances of, of she or her when describing um, the, the captors, the soldiers, but not he or him. So they did it by gender, which was, was a fascinating thing to me. Wow, that's so interesting. Well, one of the things that you talk about, too, is how focused... People in those the the prisoners in those circumstances can become if there's nothing else to occupy your mind in all that time the smallest details about your captors will stand out. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- there's a there's a part in the in the novel that deals with the idea of these spot checks. You know, you're in a room; it's not much bigger than you are. You sit there for 23, 24 hours a day, and every I forget 30 seconds or whatever it is a little slot in the door opens and a soldier checks in on you, you know, to make sure you're not harming yourself, to just basically see where you're at. Um, that's a real thing that happens, in, That at least when I was in Guantanamo, that happened in Camp 6, uh, Camp 5, probably Camp 7, which is where they keep the alleged 9-11 masterminds, but they won't show us that place. And that's numbing for everybody involved. I mean, forget for a second the, the person who, who's being checked on for every 30 seconds. There is someone on the other end of that door whose job it is to just walk up and down a hall and look at the same thing over and over again. That is a numbing experience. You create American rebels well and an American rebellion well. Uh, and one of the things that makes us good is we get to know all these characters on the on the southern side of the border, but not so much on the northern side. And I think that that keeping the uh, antagonists faceless was a, was a, a very effective technique. Thank you. Yeah, that was uh, there was there was a deliberate aspect to that. I um I didn't want to have too much of the novel set in the north because I mean objectively speaking in my mind the north is the right side of this war. You know, the, it's the south that wanted to secede and, and so on and so forth. Um but I was I was unconcerned with the idea of of giving the reader comfort by putting them on what they might think would be the sort of the morally right side or something like that. That didn't play into my mind. Um, what I wanted was for the reader to not be able to take sides and to blindly take sides in this book without assuming some level of moral debt. Um, and so to me, the victorious side almost by default had to be far away. I I think, too, you were talking about um, the way that identifying with these with the characters. I think that for me, what's so interesting is that we, when we meet Sarah, we really like her. We want to be with her. We we want her to succeed at something that was objectively, you know, not something we probably want to have happen. I think that you, the way that that to put the reader's sympathies, it's like you put the reader's sympathies on a on a block and take a cleaver and split them in half. <laughs> it's vicious. It's it's terrifying. And as a reader, you're looking, well, that looks like the other half of my brain over there. I'm going to throw a big question mark at the end of my thank you. Uh, thank you, I think. Um, yeah, they, I, 
it's very difficult for me, and I suspect this has to do with with just a, a lack of ability more than anything else. But it's very difficult for me to conceive of of villains or evil characters who are don't either have a heart of gold, so really they're okay, or are just cartoonishly evil. And what I wanted by the end of the book, even though Surratt's crimes in this book are cartoonishly grotesque, and that's that's by design, what I didn't want was for the reader to sympathize with her or to apologize for her or to even like her. All I wanted, the only thing I was interested in, was that they understand how she became the thing she became. That's all that mattered to me. That was absolutely 100% unpleasantly, (laughs) but also pleasantly realized. And I think that that's a hard thing. That's a really tough line to to play. Um, You, when you want it, you're in this sense, you're taking on the uh, guise of a horror author. Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein about the monster. We like the monster and we like Victor Frankenstein both. <laughs> I, I have to say the, the single greatest thing about this ongoing book tour is constantly finding myself mentioned in the same sentence as writers <laughs> who are far, far greater than I will ever be. It's fantastic for the ego. Um, with, I don't know if... If I did the character justice, and I, I don't know if I achieved what I intended to achieve, um, and I and I sometimes get to a place where I forget that you know this is a debut novel by a thirty-two-year-old writer, um, and it is it's a deeply flawed book um, and deeply ambitious, which which creates even greater flaws when they happen. But what I mean by that is. I was trying for something very specific mm-hmm. with the arc of this character. And she had the pressure of being herself, but also being the thing on which the thematic elements of the story rested. Right. You know, that's the arc of the story is how she changes. Mm-hmm. That's a lot to put on a character. <laughs> when you were creating Surat, did you, how did you... How did you feel about her outside of her mission as a character? I mean, did you have a relationship with this character, I guess, perhaps outside of the book, I guess I'm saying? She's the only one who who, who lives in my mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, she's the only one who still lives with me. Um I don't think she would like me. I don't think she would want to have anything to do with me. I, I, I don't mean that we have a friendship. Um, I mean that I wonder about who she is and where she is and whether I did right by her. I don't normally feel that way about my characters, and that might be the result of the characters being badly written or they might be sort of there for, for reasons that they shouldn't be and so feel irrelevant, but, but I think about her a lot... Um, and so one of the things that has happened since the book has come out is that I've worked with people who have taken elements, some or all of this book, and made it their own. You know, most superficially, superficially, um, the cover design. You know, a, a really talented artist named Peter took this book and created his own art around it. Um, Dion Graham, one of the finest artists I've ever worked with, did the audiobook, and he took it and sort of made it his own. And I hope one day that somebody become Surratt in a way that 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 m- takes her from me and makes her uh, uh, some another human being that makes her their own and and I don't know how that's going to be but but um I th- sorry that's a very roundabout way for me to say that I think about her all the time well I I mean has this been sold to the movies I can it seems like it's obviously there's a Oscar award nomination <laughs> for somebody who who does this We've gotten some some interest. Uh, we still haven't haven't sold any rights or done anything like that. Um, the The most intriguing thing to me about that that side of the world is that some again some some really talented artists can then take this, put it in another medium, and, and make it their own. Um, one of the best responses we've gotten so far, because I guess the book early on made its way around L.A. and and sort of landed in the hands of the sort of people who make these deals. Somebody got back to us and said something along the lines of, you know, I love this book. 
I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> I thought, what a great, what a great response. <laughs> that's, a, I, that's, I agree. Uh, <laughs> one thing I want to say kind of about this book is that as we read it, um, it much of the book is a prequel to the culminating incident. But also, <laughs> as I'm reading it, sitting here in 2017, I'm thinking, God, I'm the prequel to the prequel <laughs> to this book. So there's always this sense of science fiction in science fiction that there's a, there you say, and actually you say this in the book verbatim, you say there's always a before. And in this case, and in this, the case of science fiction, the before is always where the reader is sitting there holding the book going, holy, holy, either I want the world to be like this or, oh no. Yeah, I was, um, I was asked about this recently. I was asked for a comment on a story about The Handmaid's Tale, which mm -hmm. is one of the finest dystopias ever written, in my opinion. Um, and I was, I was, so I went back and reread that book. Um, and I was, I was thinking, and I was speaking about the idea of um, that dystopias are sort of concerned with the end, but they're written in the middle, mm -hmm. um, which is to say, by the time the events about which any dystopic novel is warning actually take place, the dystopic novel is useless. It's irrelevant. <laughs> you know, it's it's failed in whatever it was trying to say. And so this book, it you know, it certainly doesn't doesn't rank among the, the, the other books I've mentioned, but but is it shares that idea of being concerned with the end but having been written in the middle. Um, you know. I've been speaking with Omar L. Akkad, his new book is American War. Thank you for joining me, Omar. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.